0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And our guest today is Dr. Raina McIntyre, Head of the Biosecurity Research Program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. Professor McIntyre, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Raina, tell us a little bit about what is it that the Biosecurity Research Program does at the Kirby Institute?
1: We do research on infectious diseases, um, newly emerged infections, things like COVID-19, um, vaccines, vaccine-preventable diseases, epidemics, pandemics, and bioterrorism. Sure. What sorts
0: of things in your experience, because you have been at the, the front of this whole COVID-19 pandemic since it sort of hit back at the beginning of this year, what sorts of things in your experience are you seeing that you feel... Security, as in public security, dealing with the uh, the general public, probably needs to be doing a little bit better. Leaving out the inquiry that's going on in Victoria at the moment.
1: Well, I think there's a whole lot of areas where issues of security intersect with pandemic control. You know, whether it's um, compliance with different directives. Um, obviously, Australia has the Biosecurity Act, which um, gives. Certain powers to government, uh, which yep. once once you declare a state of emergency, like has been done in Victoria, that gives the government far greater powers, more draconian powers, um, to try and control the pandemic. So, uh, and that's where obviously you know police are called in to help with enforcing some of those things. Um, we've seen some instances of. Civil unrest, not not anywhere near as much as what's happening in the U.S. You know, where there's armed um, protesters protesting about having to wear masks. We, fortunately, yep. Australians are generally more trusting of government and more happy to go along with what's best for the country than uh, than Americans, by the looks of it. Yeah. Um. So from that perspective, it's not been as challenging. Um. And then the other questions are around the origins of the pandemic and um, you know there was quite an interesting article yesterday I think in the Australian which um, outlined the case for why it may have been something that arose from a laboratory accident in Wuhan Um, and how do we as a community um, of different kinds of experts address that you know is it important to look into that is it important to find out you know did this actually just originate in nature or did it originate um, from some kind of man-made incursion and uh, in that article they sort of said well the WHO should be investigating um, what happened in that lab and, and whether the origin of the virus is connected to the lab but really that's not the kind of thing that WHO does they don't have Forensic expertise—they don't normally go in and investigate um, things that really fall in a a different domain, which is where security agencies come into it. Mm. Um, And if if you look back historically at um, sort of events where public health and security have intersected, such as the anthrax attack in 2001 in the U.S., that required very close cooperation between the public health agencies and the FBI. To investigate. And um, they actually came up with a manual on forensic epidemiology and how to do um, joint investigations.
0: Yep. Okay. So we've obviously got something of an outbreak in Victoria at the moment that we're trying to contend with. And as part of that, rather than go back into a stage four lockdown, the, the Victorian government has chosen to do a bit of a hybrid where we've got stage three restrictions, but with mandatory face masks. In those other states around Australia where they haven't gotten to that point yet because either the numbers don't dictate that they need to or whatever the reason may be, for those people who are running security companies where we have guard forces out in a public facing role, do you think it is still the most prudent course of action for those guards to be wearing face masks wherever possible regardless of what the level of restriction is?
1: Yes, I do. I think, you know, the the more, the earlier that face masks are used, the more effective they'll be. Um, You know, there's a strong case to be made for mandating face masks in New South Wales or in Sydney, at least. You know, there's already several hotspots of some community transmission. Do we wait until we're having 500 cases a day before we say let's wear a face mask? Or do we do it early with any of the interventions that we use? controlling the disease, the earlier they use, the more impact they'll have, the more cases they'll prevent. So, um, you know, there's a good case that everybody should be wearing masks, particularly in New South Wales.
0: Yep. Based on your expertise and your experience and what's happened in Victoria and what seems to be happening in New South Wales at the moment, is it reasonable to believe that until such time as we have potentially a vaccine, that we're going to see these sorts of, you know, outbreaks or mini outbreaks continuing to occur across Australia, and and if so, why? What can we do to try and minimise that?
1: Yes, that is the likely course that we face. Um, you know, because most people in Australia uh, do not have immunity to this virus. So as long as that's the case, uh, and as long as the borders are open, even the smallest little bit, to let Australians return home, which is currently sort of the situation. Uh, There will always be that risk that um, infection will come into a community, whether it's in in any state, um, and then set off an epidemic. The risk is the highest for New South Wales and Victoria because the greatest number of international arrivals come into those two states. Um, But we've also got quite a bit of movement between borders and the borders are quite porous from what I understand. So um, there's also the risk of infection passing from, you know, one of those from Victoria or New South Wales into other states.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, I guess one of the challenges that a lot of security companies are going to be experiencing at this point in time, and we've seen this play out to some degree uh, with what has happened in the quarantine hotels, not across all of them, most of them have done okay, but some of them there have been some incidents, Security is going to often find itself being a frontline responder, put into positions where it's being asked to manage situations on very little notice. And there's a lot of what's happened in the last six months that really has been kind of jump and build your wings on the way down. In order to try and minimise this kind of thing, what sorts of standard operating procedures should security companies have in place for dealing with infectious diseases like this?
1: So, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So, I think all security companies should be giving their employees training on infection prevention and control, the basics of things like hand hygiene, physical distancing, wearing a mask, um, you know, gloves, all the other things you need to do. And training about a bit of training on, you know, the nature of infectious diseases and who's at highest risk. So, return travellers are coming into hotel quarantine are at really high risk because there's a massive pandemic going on outside our borders. Um, almost every country is really severely affected and it's getting worse by the day. So if you're working in that kind of setting, you're at risk you know, of yep. being exposed to someone with infection. So I think some basic training on the principles of infectious diseases, how they're transmitted, particularly COVID-19, and what to do to reduce that risk. Which is essentially physical distancing, face masks, hand washing, um, and not coming into work when you're sick as well.
0: Yeah. Where would companies find that kind of training? Are those resources available online? Are you aware of any? Do you know of anything that's available?
1: Yeah, there's quite a lot of good um, infographics and kind of um, information on web pages. Um, even in the federal Department of Health as well as the state departments all have pretty good information um, with infographics, etc. cetera. Um, I know Victorian DHS also provides a um, how-to-make-your-own-cloth-mask um, instruction.
0: Yep. Do you feel that in this environment there really needs to be some sort of certification program that companies have to go through that says, you know, even if it's an online training program, my staff have gone through... Uh, an infectious diseases control training system and they understand how to do it and we're certified in this and that that needs to be brought in?
1: Well, I think that depends. You know, the certification serves a purpose if it's recognised by someone else. So it's it may not carry much meaning if it's just an internal standard that, you know, whereas if, for example, I would be looking at opening up a dialogue with health authorities, you know, to say okay we're going to be working in these situations um to provide services during the pandemic Um, is it useful if we provide you know a, a sort of minimum competency in infection control for our people and um how would you suggest we go about it so i think doing that in dialogue with the health authorities is probably a good idea because then you're doing something that they want and they would consider valuable
0: yeah absolutely And I suppose this this is more prevalent now than ever, especially if we're in a situation where we need to use subcontractors, which does happen. If my staff, if, you know, John Bigelow security staff have all been trained in, in how to manage infectious diseases, but then I've got to bring in a contractor, I need to make sure that they're up to date too. Otherwise, I'm putting my trained staff at risk.
1: Yeah, that's right. And also, I think increasingly, like when you look at cities um, that have had really bad epidemics, their normal law enforcement um, agencies have had to subcontract their their work um, to private security companies because they've had either had lots of people off sick themselves, um, or the requirements for maintaining law and order um, have been so great that they don't have the capacity. So that's the other. Um, situation in which private security um, contractors may be called in to do into roles that they don't normally fulfill which are normally fulfilled by government agencies.
0: Yeah now often with many of these things like you know an infectious disease like we're dealing with at the moment or potentially a terrorist attack or whatever it may be something happens there's a rush to try and manage or deal with it and then yeah we become complacent we sort of think well okay we've dealt with that thankfully it's passed we're never going to have to deal with that again and a lot of security companies may be looking at what's going on right now thinking well we don't necessarily want to invest a huge amount of time and effort and energy and training uh, in training and resources for dealing with infectious diseases but if we look at the frequency with which we've been seeing these things occur and emerge over the last 20 years, from SARS to bird flu to swine flu to avian flu and MERS and all the rest of it, would it be correct to assume that we're starting to see a greater emergence of these with a decreasing decreasing time period and this could happen again?
1: Yes, it's very likely to happen again. Wow!
0: Uh, can, you, can you and and we may that? never
1: be we may never be rid of COVID nineteen. You know, even if um, we have a vaccine, it may not be a perfect vaccine, or um, not everyone in the world may be able to get vaccinated. So it might be a situation like you know, um, with smallpox, for example. You know, I, I mean, I don't think COVID nineteen can be eradicated, but with smallpox, there was a period of about a hundred years since the vaccine came in before it was finally eradicated um, because there were just so many hot spots in the world where they couldn't vaccinate people. And I think it's very likely we'll have a world like that <laughs> into the medium term where we're living with this virus and there's always the risk that somebody could get infected. Um, and yes, you know, the rate of um, serious emerging infections causing epidemics around the world has increased. It's increased quite a lot in the last 10 years. You have to ask the question why as well.
0: Yeah, why, why is that?
1: Well, you know, people speculate that it's um, driven by things like climate change and changes in agricultural and forestry practices and um, farming practices, etc. Um, but I, I'm not sure that the rate of change of those things has been as rapid as what we're seeing with the emergence of new viruses.
0: Okay, so we do, don't know. Okay, so it's hard to sort of put a finger on why we're seeing an increase in these, but we are the the statistics show we are definitely seeing an increase.
1: Yes, yeah, we are.
0: Okay, so this is obviously something that we need to be planning and preparing for long term. I mean, to the best of your ability, what can you tell us about potential vaccines from what you understand moving forward? You know, you said it's it's unlikely to get rid of the disease. I know there have been competing schools of thought around, you know, you'll need boosters every couple of months. Some people will be able to take it, some people won't. Where does that stand right now?
1: So, look, there's a bunch of really promising-looking vaccines that are being developed for which early studies have been published. Um, there's at least 10 to 20 different um, sort of uh, pr- very promising vaccines being developed and um, so it's highly likely we'll have vaccines in the not too distant future um, but it is it is probable that they won't give you lifelong immunity. So you know a vaccine like the measles vaccine, once you've been vaccinated you're immune for life but that's not going to be the case for this virus because it's a different kind of virus and um, it's likely that if it does give you immunity, it'll last, you know, a, maybe a year, maybe five years, you know, maybe less, um, and you'll need boosters. Yeah. We don't know exactly exactly what sort of configuration that's going to be in, but um, and it may not be 100% effective. So, you know, uh, but a vaccine that's 50% effective or 60% effective that protects 50% or 60% of people will still... Um, help to control the disease substantially.
0: Okay, and I mean COVID is one of, or COVID nineteen is one of a, a range of different COVID strains that we have seen over the years. So is it likely that we're going to see other COVID strains emerge against which that vaccine may not have any efficacy?
1: Um, it's possible. Um, it's always possible, but the coronaviruses are not; they they don't mutate as much as say influenza. So if it was an influenza pandemic, yes, definitely. Um, This virus is more stable. So um, hopefully, you know, once there's uh, a vaccine, it'll be reasonably effective, even if there are mutations in the virus.
0: So with regard to companies preparing for this sort of thing, moving forward, potentially being a a position that we have to deal with here in Australia for uh, the foreseeable future, We've talked a little bit about infectious diseases training um, and obviously having stocks of PPE. Uh, is there anything else you can think of that companies really need to be doing to sort of try and make sure that they're prepared to deal with this and keep their staff safe?
1: Well, I think PPE is the main thing, but obviously you look at the hierarchy of risk controls and um, occupational health and safety and you know, eliminating the risk is the best thing. So, you know, placing your staff in places where they're not going to be at risk um, is ideal. Um, and then looking at environmental controls that can reduce the risk of exposure to staff. Um, but sometimes those things won't be in your control. And particularly if private security companies are managing hotel quarantine, um, that is a high-risk situation where there's you know likely to be people who are bringing infection in um, but then PPE is kind of the last line of defence. So um, that is an important investment for, for companies.
0: Yeah. What about things like, um, you know, in the contracts that a lot of security companies might have, like let's say I provide security for a retail store uh, or retail chain and I have uh, security guards facing the public every day Is it reasonable to expect that some security companies might want to write into their contracts with those people, my staff need to wear PPE and you can't tell them not to? Because there may be situations where a retailer's like, or anyone, you know, adopts a position of, can you maybe ask your staff not to wear that because it looks intimidating and it scares the public and maybe reminds them all that we're in an unsafe environment?
1: Yes, I think it'd be very sensible to have that in the contract. You know, ultimately, your your primary obligation is for the work, health and safety of your staff. Yeah.
0: Okay. So my final question, just to finish up, what do you think the next few months look like for Australia?
1: Well, it's looking very challenging. You know, um, there's no easy road ahead. There's no quick fix. There's no magic solutions. You know, we are living with this virus and it's going to continue to be difficult. Um until the time when we have a reasonably good vaccine and enough of it for everyone.
0: Yeah. Realistically, in, to, I understand that this is kind of how long's a piece of string, but to the best of your ability to estimate, how long do you think that might potentially be?
1: Realistically, it, it'll be hopefully sometime next year. You never know. It may be this year, but I, I think that's unlikely.
0: Well, I imagine even once they've got a a vaccine that potentially works, it's going to take some months to roll it out and get it through the populations of all the different countries.
1: That's right, and there's also a limit limit to the rate of production of the vaccine. There's you know seven billion people in the world, and um, probably the US will buy up everything that's available immediately, and uh, you know everyone else will be standing in line. Of course, Australia's got. Vaccine manufacturing capacity, which puts us at an advantage, but then you have to rely on getting a um, like a patent or permission from whoever the manufacturer is. Say, say a company somewhere else develops the best vaccine, you have to work out some kind of arrangement where they allow you to manufacture it in Australia. So, but the government's looking at all of that, um, and also Australia's part of an initiative um, to. A global supply of vaccines, where um, you're guaranteed to get what you need for your first responders initially, but every country gets a similar proportion of vaccine, but you may have to wait longer to get vaccine for everyone. Yeah. So there's a couple of different mechanisms that are in play at the moment.
0: Okay. All right. And uh, I suppose the other side of it is, you know, there are a lot of people who work in the security space that bring product in from overseas and need to deal with overseas companies and are involved with global events and all the rest of it. To your mind, how long do you think it'll be before we start to see international borders opening up again?
1: I think it's going to be a while. You know, again, it's went until we can vaccinate people. And I think, you know, vaccination may be one of the, it might, it might be like yellow fever vaccine where you have to show on your passport that you've been vaccinated before you travel.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, Dr. Sorry, Professor McIntyre, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic having you on the show today. Um, If people want to find out more about your research, where do they go?
1: Um, They can just Google my name or go on the UNSW website and um, put my name into the search button.
0: Excellent. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to hear more of these podcasts, there are plenty in the uh, ASIAL security insider range. You can find them on Google, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Blurberry, and all the other fantastic places that you find them. Or you can go to the ASIAL website, which is www.asial.com.au. Thank you once again for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and we look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thank you.